Hello, and welcome back to the Salary to CEO podcast. I'm your host, Jake Richards, and you're listening to the show that helps you leave your nine to five and build a life of wealth, purpose, and autonomy through small business ownership. Tech venture capital is the big leagues, where billion-dollar valuations are the norm, and the behemoth companies that we now can't live without are born. But what do venture capitalists know that the rest of us don't? And what lessons from this space can give us an edge to dominate the world of small business investing and operating? Well, today's guest is as certified as it gets to answer these questions. Today, we're speaking with Elizabeth Knopf, an M&A investor and operator with over 15 years of experience in the tech industry, including, get this, six SaaS exits, one of which was an IPO, scaling a nine-figure tech company to more than $1 billion in annual recurring revenue, launching an e-commerce marketplace in Latin America to over seven figures in only nine months, and over $40 million of capital invested. She's facilitated mega transactions on companies like Facebook and Groupon, and now she's leveraging her venture capital and startup skill set to crush small business investing. In this episode, Elizabeth breaks down her step-by-step process for building out your small business deal sourcing engine, how she's capitalizing on the multi-billion dollar small business opportunity she's calling the tech tsunami and how you can do the same and creative strategies to get into deals and transactions outside of the normal M&A routes. Guys, as I said, this is the venture capital secrets for small business investing. You're in for a treat with this one. So let's dive into the episode. Welcome to the show, Elizabeth. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Our mutual friend, Yongsu, put us in touch. What's this story I heard about you getting a start in Silicon Valley hitchhiking? <laughs> uh, yeah, so I had just moved from Boston. In Boston, I was working in venture capital. I moved out to Silicon Valley uh, where all the, the heat of the action was. Decided to actually work for a startup at the time. And so I went through their interview process. And part of that was one day, this was before I was hired, but it was sort of like, you know, you're going to get hired. But before I signed any paperwork, they had an event where they brought together a bunch of investors uh, because the company was called Second Market. Basically, we were trading secondaries in private tech companies. So before Facebook went public, we were facilitating transactions of Facebook stock, Groupon, a bunch of other interesting tech companies at the time. And so they would bring together investors and do events to cultivate those relationships because there's a lot of uh, strict regulations on how you can market. So uh, events was like a key thing. So during this, it was a, a wine tour in Napa Valley, not too shabby as a first pre-day on the job. You know, I watched my alcohol. I didn't overdrink or anything like that, but I get to be very chatty and inquisitive when I, you know, maybe have had a couple sips or, uh, of wine here. So I started chatting it up at the last winery with some sommelier. And all of a sudden, I had purchased a couple bottles of wine, walk out, and the bus was completely gone. And this was the, before the time of Uber. So that was not around. So you're properly stranded. Oh, I was totally stranded. And, you know, this is super embarrassing being like, I missed the bus. I haven't even signed my paperwork. This is who you're going to hire. First thing, right. So I, rather than calling them to say like, hey, and then turn the bus around for, you know, there was like over 50 people and inconvenience everybody. I was like, you know, in my, my haze thinking, okay, the best thing would do to get a ride with someone because getting a taxi, like, can I manage getting back in time where nobody will notice that I wasn't on the bus? Like that was the goal. And I had left like sweaters and a couple other things like on the bus. So I had 
basically negotiated with the person I was talking to and one of their bosses to like find one of one of the bartenders to take me to Larkspur Landing, where then I would get on a ferry to then get to San Francisco port area where I could then get off and then try to make it back in time. Like I sort of did the calculations thinking if I do it at this time, I could get there and no one will know and then just be like, hey, I got off at a different stop. So that actually worked out. So I ended up hitchhiking. Like I had also, I don't, I don't think I had a ton of money at the time, like in cash on me again. And things were, it was different where it's like, you couldn't just pay digitally. You couldn't, there was just like a lot of factors that would, today would have been a much easier process. So anyway, so I, I ended up making it back and they had no clue that I was not on the bus. I did get a call being like, hey, we we noticed like, which stop did you get off at? And I was like, oh, I got off on this one. I think I left this. But I was able to intersect with some of my colleagues to then get the sweater, another thing I had gotten like within the time frame. So I was like very proud of me being resourceful. I ended up telling them this story like a couple months later and they just were laughing. They thought it was hilarious and, you know, felt bad about it that they left me. But I pulled it off using some resourcefulness and a little bit of wine. Yeah, so. exactly. A little bit of wine. I was going to say that. <laughs> so, it sounded like an amazing race. Mm-hmm. I was just picturing like amazing race, intense music going on, action scenes. That's hilarious. Yeah. I actually assumed sure. that sure. Silicon Valley, when I read that about you, was kind of like step one. But it sounds like you're already in venture at that point. Mm-hmm. Do you mind just actually like walking through yeah, the yeah. start of, of how you got there? And then let's jump forward to where you're at now, because I was pretty impressed reading up about it. Perfect. I started off working actually at a couple hedge funds. So I got sort of my introduction to finance that way. The best advice I ever got through that experience was stay on the buy side. So meaning be an investor, make those investment decisions. I was covering tech at the time. So I was an intern. So those were internships. I ended up then getting exposed to venture capital, which I had no clue really what it was. I just knew it was something with tech. It seemed really cool. There was this whole thing called Silicon Valley and that was it. That was really my level of knowledge about VC at the time. But I saw on like a couple of our job boards that there were some VCs interviewing. And I was like, listen, you know, I could go down the banking route. That sounds awful. Just that overall experience. And hey, what is that going to then lead me to do? So I was like, oh, well, this is what people do after they go into banking. So why not just see if I there's an opportunity and I can go do that? And so I went ahead and went through the process of applying schmoozing. And actually during that time, I had also been an entrepreneur with some of my college buddies. So I had already built, started building businesses and down the entrepreneurial bent. So like startups was already in my blood, tech was in my blood and finance. So I sort of had a good combination and a good story to pitch where I then went on to be an analyst and associate at a company called OpenView Venture Partners out in Boston. And even though they were not in Silicon Valley, I learned I think, a ton from that experience. Some of the partners were former operators at startups. And then another one was formerly like at McKinsey at a American Express and then also in VC. So all of them had really good pedigrees. Um, and I just absorbed a ton from the partners and having working at a small place allowed me to really absorb and cultivate mentorship from them. You get a lot more responsibility, right? Absolutely. So basically, yeah, me and a couple of my colleagues built up our deal flow engine, essentially. This was sort of a secret sauce because we were looking at very specific investment criteria and we were looking globally. So even though we weren't in Silicon Valley, we were actually looking for sort of alternative opportunities in a very specific buy box, which at the time was very unusual for 
investors for VCs because most had like a little bit broader scope in how they invest. It was really based on the team. We were very metric driven. Right. So I just got a, a bunch of really good learnings from that. And then I, I moved out to Silicon Valley when I really got the entrepreneurial bug, but realized I wanted to get experience at a startup. So worked for a couple startups, then started my own software company, then ended up actually moving down to Latin America, working at a rocket internet company, which is basically they sort of do a geo-cloning strategy where they take successful business models in the U.S. and apply them elsewhere internationally. So getting that international exposure where Spanish is not my uh, strength at all. So I had to basically sell in Spanish. That was fascinating in a very aggressive company. So it was really good to get that scaling experience and then ended up coming back to the U.S. and worked for a defense tech company. And then after a few years being successful and, and growing through the ranks in that large corporate environment, I got the entrepreneurial bug again. This was during the pandemic and decided to leave. Uh, there was a, a number of factors why I decided to leave. It was a great company. I had great relationships, still do. But it was just time for me to get back on the entrepreneurial path. And so I left started working on a joint venture that we had with a very innovative nanotechnology that we had come across during the pandemic and then started going through the business buying process because we realized we needed distribution or sort of approach it differently rather than how we had been initially with the joint venture. And so after I sort of reinvigorated my appetite for business buying, I realized how much I love the process, the, the hunt for the deal, the analysis, thinking through what a good transaction would look like. And so I am in the middle of that still. I have been working on a couple different deals in the government tech space, just having had experience from the, the defense contractor previously. And so I've been looking very much in that niche as well as a couple software companies, but software for for where I'm buying, it doesn't make a ton of sense or it hasn't yet. I still am on the lookout for opportunities, but very particular. And also a couple sort of unique scenarios have come up that I'm I'm testing with a couple of partners. So I'm going to be a little probably vague on that one. But that's sort of where I'm at is I'm, I'm right now searching for opportunities and deals. Jeez, you've bounced all over the place within kind of a general yeah. space. <laughs> <laughs> was that some grand plan or was it one day at a time and things come up, opportunities you come away, you get a little yeah. itch here or there. Do you set goals for this? How did you approach it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's both. So I would say earlier in my career, I was very deliberate and very intentional. I think after my first company that I started, I became, I think, a little bit more opportunistic and widened my lens. I had a, early on in my career, I had a very specific definition of what I thought success looked like. And as I got more experience under my belt and hopefully some wisdom, I realized that there's a lot more definitions of what success looks like. And so it was sort of taking a step back is like, where do I want to gain experience? What has some potential upside? Because for me, it's always where can I actually get equity in an opportunity? So for every startup I've worked for, every company I've worked for, I'd made sure that there's upside and not just upside, but potentially unlimited upside. So that's been always a, a careful criteria. And uh, my excursion out into Latin America was uh, more driven by my personal life. Uh, my husband's Panamanian, so that sort of drew me down there. But besides that, it has been fairly deliberate. And I would say now now it's both deliberate and opportunistic. I have a, a buy box. I have some specific 
areas I'm looking at, but it's like I give it a certain period of time. And if I'm not seeing what I need, then I'll move on. So it's a mix. It's a mix. I'm always opportunistic. We'll put it that way, but with some goals in mind. Totally. And we're going to jump into the buy box because I'm curious to pick your brain on that. Actually, it might be helpful just to kind of round this out in what is this sort of all culminating? For example, I saw that you had six SaaS exits. Yes. Okay. So yeah. So from the VC experience, the interesting part of and the opportunity I had was basically being able to invest alongside the fund. And so I was like technically an LP as well as you wouldn't really call me a GP at the time because I didn't have that structure, but basically I was able to earn equity in the deals that we sourced. And we also had a fund. I got part of the fund basically. So that was a very unique scenario within VC. Most folks early in their careers don't necessarily get to to do that, but I did. And so that really is the result of those exits. So when I say that I you know, deploy 40 million in capital. It really comes from that experience um, working in VC and investing in companies. We had usually a check size anywhere from five to $10 million at the time. So we did about 40 deals when I was there. This was 2008, 2009, 10 times period. So things were much slower. It was very interesting. And so that's, that's I think, one bucket. The defense company that I worked at, I basically helped lead and grow our revenue side of the business from $350 million to over a billion dollars and a multiple of that in bookings. Uh, So that was a really high growth scenario in a large company, which I think was also unique. That was, I would say, a lot of luck in, in my timing there. And so that was that was super interesting at the the Rocket Internet startup. That one, the outcomes weren't as great in terms of financial results and, and equity and all of that, but we grew that really quickly. Like we had to basically get over 100,000 SKUs live within like not, a little bit over 90 days. So that was from identifying suppliers, onboarding them onto a system in a country where there really wasn't e-commerce at the time. There weren't payment systems. And so you were pitching all of these suppliers who had never done business in the way that we were trying to transform the market into doing business. So that was, I would say, a very big feat. And again, I was doing managing a team in a second language. So that was like, Jesus Christ, (laughs) really tough experience. But yeah, definitely rewarding. Oh, my God, I can empathize with you so much, right? I've been living in France for the past four years. (laughs) And uh, I know all of the sticky situations that you get caught in, in day to day, let alone when you start speaking professionally let alone running a team, let alone trying to sell and negotiate. Mm -hmm. And yeah, Yeah, it was, I feel for you. I I can imagine some of the situations that arose. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so then now I'm in the middle of a lot of my investments. So I I can't really speak to their returns at the moment because yeah, I'll, I'll sort of stay quiet on that. But I have, I would say two sort of active deals at the moment. And they're not sort of typical M&A. The next one I do will probably be typical M&A, but the ones I'm working on right now are not. They're more JVs. And um, I have another one in the pipe that's also very unique. And I would say a little bit more flexible on some of the structuring of how you go about supporting some of these transactions. So just to get some clarity, just for my sake, it sounded like it started off, you went back into startup world, nanotechnology, and you notice that you needed to gain extra distribution. So rather than trying to build that yourself over time, you went out and bought those things. Yep. That's the joint venture side, if I'm not mistaken. But yep. are you now also looking at this a little bit like, yep. oh, I really like this. Maybe I actually want to be this kind of like build a portfolio, not just 
to support this business, but actually for just different opportunities and different industries and areas that I see an opportunity to use my skill set. Is that kind of how it's played out? Is my interpretation correct there? Yes, that is absolutely correct. I would say sort of the next deal I'm looking at is I want to have a little bit larger size deal to have a bit of an anchor. And so the path might shift where, like, I know I'm going to probably have to operate in these businesses and I'm completely okay with that. I actually really enjoy the operational side too, even though I get sort of that high and adrenaline rush off of the deal. But again, you only do so many deals too. So I think the next deal that I want to do because it's different than what I've done in the past, I will be basically looking to do probably a traditional M&A style deal, try to avoid using too much of my own capital to do that, see if there's different creative financing structures. Yeah, exactly. And then from there, it just really depends on the opportunity is how I then start piecing things together. I think what will happen is I'll do that as a platform and then potential other I don't want to say a roll up because that's sort of not the thesis right now, but if that's an opportunity for growth. But I think the next one I want to do, I want something that I can really sink my teeth into and grow um, and spend some more time before sort of scaling the deal portfolio process. Because one, I'm, I don't have a fund, so this is all self-driven. I have to be realistic in my bandwidth and also making sure I can figure out a recipe that will transfer over to additional deals. Because again, the first deals I did were very unique. So it will not translate to the next one. And I want to make sure what I do for the next one is sort of the blueprint that'll obviously be iterated thereafter, but that I could then start scaling from there. So it's about baking a good pie first before I I, uh, try to- Getting a foundation set. Exactly. Totally. I mean, you've been in this industry for a long time, so you don't need any advice from me. But actually, Yongsu put me onto a good book when you started talking about financing, which was Business Wealth Without Risk. Oh, okay. And it kind of blew my mind as to all the different opportunities there are to actually get a deal across the line, having not worked in that world myself, that didn't involve cash out of pocket, so many different options. Absolutely. And just to sort of drill into that point, you know, I'm still learning about interesting creative deal structures. And I've, I've been thinking about this stuff for a while and played on many different sides of the table on this. But I think people need to think about transactions differently because like, I really like joint ventures. They can have a lot of hair as well, but like you mitigate risk, you partner with people. Putting a deal together, you can also do very well from. So people need to sort of, I think, look at the different opportunities where you can do transactions without either taking the risk or minimizing risk or how you actually make your money from that opportunity. Some people think you have to go then be the operator. Some people think you have to actually uh, have the capital. Some people don't realize you could just have certain resources that contribute that are non-monetary or non-obvious, like a network or connections. You could be the one sourcing a deal. There's more capital than there are deals. So if you are good at deal sourcing, you'll be able to get part of a transaction if you put it together. Deals have a lot of pieces to them. And putting together a vision of what that transaction could translate into for potential upside. There's a lot of different pieces of that equation that people can participate in. They just need to realize they have agency in that process in creating opportunity. So it's not just like trying to find something so black and white and straightforward that'll hit you over the head, but rather say like, I know somebody here. I have connections in here. This is an interesting business. Like, could I put all these pieces together 
and create some reward and benefit. And that, again, might not actually be an M&A transaction. It could be a partnership or it could be uh, an investment. So there's a lot of different ways to skin the cat, a lot of different ways that I think people need to sort of broaden the way they think about making money from transactions. Totally. I spoke with another guy, James Richardson, on the podcast, and he he went from sort of like big four accounting into buying businesses. Mm-hmm. He's got like, he's got about six SMBs at the moment, I think. And he said some very similar stuff just around the importance of partnerships. He talked about how the value that you can create for people isn't always necessarily direct. He gave an example of a guy that he knew where it wasn't even related to the deal. He would just meet people at events and things like this. And then it would be opportunistic. The minute that they needed something, whether it's on social media that they put something out, he was a value up front. He communicated what he was already doing. And then before you know it, something strikes up and there's an opportunity for a partnership there. So it's it's interesting to hear these patterns arise where it's really about the people that you're connecting with and the value first approach that you're delivering to them to then open up opportunities on the deal side by the sounds of it. And I would recommend um, to really reprogram your mind. Go listen to Jay Abraham. He is phenomenal. He, I would consider as one of my mentors in this sort of creative thinking. He really has done so many different structures and he's just like a marketing genius and he's an interesting guy. So I highly recommend him. He's really been, I would say, a key influence in, in the way I've sort of reevaluated the way I've approached uh, opportunity. Absolutely. And you spoke about being good at deal sourcing just before. Mm-hmm. You've come mm-hmm. from that world, right? So I would expect for you to say like, oh yeah, it's a good skill to have, be good at deal sourcing. For the average person that's interested in this space, how do they start getting in their reps? Like what does good deal sourcing look like and what are the steps to actually develop? Okay. So I'll give you sort of a First, the no-nonsense way of like what to do because all this, the process then that I'll take you through of what I do and how to build that out will stop people. So rather than putting any friction in front of people, I would say, just go start talking to business owners. You go to places on a daily basis. You interact with companies. Look around your room. Look around what do you do every single day. There's a business you interact with. Go try to find the owner. You can go Google them. Go look it up on one of the database sites. Apollo is my favorite, but go find the owner, go find their name, go to the location or pick up the phone and try to engage with them. So from a process standpoint of how like I've actually built out an engine to do this is it's very similar to any kind of outbound calling or sales essentially. So it's the exact same process. You just happen to be targeting business owners instead of an individual with a specific title at a company. So you find what I've done is like I've defined, okay, this is my couple weeks focused on environmental services, specifically mold and remediation in this geography. And I am looking for these specific metrics. So then once I've sort of defined the industry, the geography, the size, any other parameters that's sort of what's the nice to have, what are my deal killers? I'll sort of lay that out and define what my investment criteria is. Then I will then find a list. You can hire someone on Fiverr or whatever to build you a list so you don't waste your time, or you can go do it yourself. I do a mix. 
Then you build your list. You can shoot out an email, then set up a sequence or a cadence to do outbound. Know that, you know, most of the people won't respond initially. Most people, you have to send a couple emails and make sure you pick up the phone. Like people forget that if you are targeting someone that might want to retire, someone that might have an interest in selling their business, like a lot of them still use the phone. So use the phone. That's a good point. Yeah. <laughs> people just rely on email and it's as easy as it is. It's also like, you know, people won't respond. They get bombarded. And these days, I feel like a lot of folks are getting bombarded by, you know, every other MBA who's trying to buy a business via email. So try to differentiate yourself. And then once you start talking to owners, like there's, you know, a different way of having the conversation. You don't want to jump into how much are you willing to sell your company for? You want to develop reports. Again, like any sort of sales conversation, develop rapport, understand like if had they ever thought about selling their business, what are their plans for the future? You know, position yourself as an investor. They're more likely to talk to you versus sort of any other way of positioning yourself. And then once you start going through a couple reps, you'll start getting more comfortable and asking questions. I have a list of questions I go through. And if they sort of start opening up, then you'll get more insight and info to see if it's worth taking the next step. You want to either maybe on the second call, get to evaluation. And for evaluation, you'll need to get some more documents from them. So you may have in the first conversation gotten like a ballpark number like a magic number that they would be interested in that might take a second phone call or another meeting time to get to. But once you're like, okay, I'm going to give you a valuation and come back to you, you need to get some information from them. So you need to get some financial statements. So, you know, you can put an NDA in place. If you can avoid an NDA, that's great. I think NDAs are just useless pieces of paper. No one really enforces them. Just try to have good business ethics. And also actually be careful if you're looking in the same industry, because if you do sign an NDA and there's some weird clause in there that requires you where you can't leverage information that you're gathering here into another conversation or there's weird competition like that could screw you over. So just make sure of that. You do sign an NDA. I've heard people just suggest even having your own set template one mm -hmm. to avoid that situation just so Absolutely. that you, you know exactly what's in there and you can run it out like Absolutely. Clockwork. And most likely like those business owners aren't going to have an NDA anyways. So like there's a standard set of legal templates online. Like you don't need to go spend tons of amounts of money on lawyers up front until you're sort of ready for a transaction, have those relationships with good lawyers. But like this is your first time you're trying to be conservative with your capital. Like don't go spend $10,000 on ha them having to write a contract or like a, a simple thing like an NDA for sure. Uh, just get that off the internet. Um, so once you've started gathering information, then you basically have to look through their financials. They're going to have weird things on their financials because most small businesses aren't, I mean, their books aren't clean. I would actually go in ahead and say that for any business, every business I like to say is like a sausage factory. You don't want to see how the sausage gets made. But having been very close to revenue recognition on a large, complicated public company, like things are very messy the small scale and the large scale. So you just have to follow up with questions to clarify things. And again, it's really about your demeanor and tone and having aligned or presenting that you have aligned outcomes. And you really do. In my mind too, when I'm going through this process, like I do want to have someone that will be around for a portion of the time so I can ask them for when things come up that I don't know, I don't know. I'll be able to use them as a resource. Also, it creates sort of the right incentives where if they're handing me over a lemon, they're not going to want to be involved. If they're still participating and get some of the upside, like they have a motivation to see 
positive outcomes and to be more honest about things. So that's sort of like just a little, I guess, a tip maybe is to try to actually keep folks involved. Now, there's some people, they just are like, I'm done. I want to be out of this. And so you just have to think through how to mitigate that risk that you get clarity through the due diligence process of those potential red flags or things that could come up that you didn't know about. And um, you could even do like 60 to 90 days after close, you have the right to hand back the business or something like that. Again, these are actually like important things to consider because I've heard horror stories about people acquiring a business, they've taken on debt with an SBA loan and the company is, you know, a POS. Yeah. So you just want to make sure that you have ways to protect your downside and you can be creative. Like there are no hard and fast rules as long as you, you know, comply with the IRS and you comply with the law in general. Like if you check off those two boxes, like you can get creative in how you structure and deal so it's okay if you wanted to say in 90 days, I'll hand your business back if like these things are not clear once I'm diving into the business. Or you can delay certain payments to help address that. So it's about just being creative in that process to make sure that when you're, your initial set of due diligence like is not going to capture everything so that after the transaction, post-transaction, you still have some level of protection to make sure what you think you're getting is what you're getting. It's interesting that you talked about potentially buying from retirees, right? And this is like the classic tagline at the moment, silver tsunami with what's going on macro-wise. But what I find really fascinating is you've kind of taken your own spin on this to almost create your own blue ocean in some ways. I read somewhere that you would, not only are you talking about the silver tsunami, but you're kind of combining that macro trend with your tech background with this tech tsunami that's flowing in and implementing tech into SMB, which I found I found that really Mm -hmm. fascinating. So could you expand on that for a little bit? Absolutely. So I spent quite a few years just looking at SMB software. So through that process, I engaged with a ton of small businesses and understanding issues. Now, that was a long time ago. But what I came to understand was the lack of tech in a lot of these small businesses, the opportunities for that in certain respects, and I'm just a tech geek. But what I will say is I would not force tech where it does not deserve to be in place. So if you are acquiring a business, like I wouldn't say just like turn on technology, figure out how to use the technology, make sure there's an actual reason. Because even though like I'll buy probably every software subscription out there if I could, but I also know that you have to have a problem to solve. (laughs) And I've implemented enough software to know that especially in small businesses, people don't like to necessarily change. And so you have to spoon feed change and go through that change management and transformation process, even if it's as simple as a piece of software that will make their lives that much better. And so I have been thinking about different ways where there is a lack of tech in certain sectors, what technology could help reduce the risk or bottleneck within that business. So I'll give you an example. I was looking at a, an environmental services company and one of the issues that they were having was they had a ton of really high paid experts because the cost of labor to evaluate this like specific thing on the facility required a lot of training and certifications. And so the way they were able to reduce that cost was through basically like an image guided process to help support some of the younger people that were still training so that they could take basically a picture of something and it could evaluate using some AI 
to understand what was required. And then, of course, I had to go and like check with a more senior person to validate that. But it allowed for more labor to come into the business at a lower cost because they were using these tools. And so that, in my mind, is a really good opportunity where it could help you specifically within your business, but then also from your competitors as well. So those are sort of the opportunities that I'm looking at. And the reason, too, I sort of shifted more into that frame of thinking versus like straight up buying software for small businesses, which I would love. And I know there's like really interesting opportunities. And again, because of the long tail of SMBs, like it is a great SMBs are great to sell into, but they're also horrible to sell into, which we can get into that conversation if you want. But looking at just acquiring software companies that were both sort of SMB and catered to SMBs, I haven't found great deals, to be quite honest. Like I have been looking and I'm just not comfortable paying certain multiples. Once I have a platform company, I will then look at that a little bit more critically because it's a different thought process and what you're doing with that technology versus just buying the technology for its own sake. Because I've either been seeing a lot of tech companies that are either A, features that, you know, unless you have a platform and for some reason, or you have a vision or some other need for that, like it's just not going to be a good sustainable business or just the economics of those deals are just not good. They're, they're looking for VC type valuations when they're a feature or a small little, they're not going to be, have a VC return. Yeah. Yeah, the size doesn't warrant that. So rather than going for tech SMBs, you're saying that there's just, you haven't found enough good deals there. Rather, you pivoted in some ways and just going, okay, let's find the SMBs that can implement tech. Now we come back to, you've obviously got to leverage your strengths, but let's just picture mm -hmm. someone, they're working for a big four accounting firm. They want to buy their first business. Mm -hmm. Should they be looking for opportunities to implement technology should or should they leave that alone for the people with technology mm -hmm. background if so should they be trying to upskill or learn in some ways is there any sort of general advice that you have around because that sounds like it's a key part of your buy box in some ways yeah no absolutely like if i can utilize technology to increase the value of the business in some way and that is even pretty broad Yes, that is a huge value add that I can offer because I, I understand tech and I can look at a problem or look at a workflow and know how to automate it very quickly. But I would say, yeah, for someone that's coming from a large accounting firm or any other corporate job, I would say start with what you know. So if you feel yeah. comfortable, whether it's accounting, like go buy some accounting firms, like that's one option. Or two, maybe you've seen the financials of a specific industry segment that you focused on within that accounting. And so you understand how the financials flow. You have maybe some relationships. Maybe you grew up or you have a good friend that knows a business really well. Like that's another option. Like you also, when you look at your own skills and resources, like it's also your network. So if you have a network of people who might be ideal partners or operating experts or can give you the real inside scoop of what something is, then, you know, utilize those people as well. So I would look at, and then look at like, what is the contribution you want to make? Like, what is the piece of, the economy that you want to be supporting. Like, I think there is a little bit higher level visioning and, and sort of mission thinking, because again, none of this is, is like sexy. None of this is like going to always be fun. There are a lot of problems and a lot of the problems it's like easier to solve in a big four accounting place where you have resources, you have other people versus like a small, medium-sized business has a whole other set of problems that are, are annoying and painful. <laughs> so make sure it's something like that you like. 
as well. But mm. yeah, utilize, look at like, what is your skill set? What is your experience? Start with something you know. That doesn't have to be the be all and end all, but like get some experience under your belt and try to get, set yourself up for success. So, you know, look at those different opportunities and hey, maybe if you're coming from accounting, you might have some insight into a specific way of, of improving the books or, or financing, or maybe they didn't look at ways to acquire capital or lines of credit or something. Like there might be some opportunity there that you have insight into that has been underutilized or you can find an opportunity where that is value you could potentially bring to increase the value of the business. Absolutely. So it's just getting clear on yourself, your experience. And actually, I did something that was quite helpful for me when I was starting on this process, which was, and I just picked this up in Buy Then Build by Walker Diebel, but it was start with a personal career audit. So look at all of the times where you enjoyed what you're doing. Look at all the times where you've had some sort of accomplishment and then identify the behaviors that were driving that. And it was crazy at the repetition of behaviors that I might not have picked out as like, oh yeah, this is my competitive advantage, or this is maybe where I've actually got a skill set there. The same things would pop up like three, four or five times and it became very clear. And it was just such a simple exercise for getting that clarity, knowing yourself and then going, okay, that's what I'm going to be focusing on. And then the next one that you mentioned there as well, which has then led into this next opportunity that I'm moving in was where you may know someone that has a leg up in some sort of industry that already has clients in some space and they want to branch out into something different. They might have resources, whatever that might be. Anywhere you, where you can gain that competitive advantage is very key. And that starts with understanding your own situation, right? Asking yourself Absolutely. the questions. Absolutely. And you know, some people it's hard and I would say actually not just some people, everybody, it's really hard to do that self-evaluation. So utilize your family, your friends, your colleagues to also give you that assessment. There's this little fun analogy I like to say that you can't read the label if you're inside the jar. So let other people give you that feedback and label you what you are. 100%. Your mind sets up so many traps and biases. And if you don't think mm -hmm. that's the case, reflect back on every argument you had with your partner. And you, you think that you're right 100% of the time. And unless you're like Buddha reincarnated, you're not right 100% of the time. So you've got some blind spots there that other people exactly. are able to see. Are you, are you comfortable sharing like what your buy box is now? You mentioned a little bit there, like yeah. government tech, potentially retiring yep. owners. Yep. Maybe there's a specific EBITDA or something that you're targeting. How's that kind of look shape up for you now? Yeah. So minimum 500K EBITDA. That's a minimum. I will go higher than that. I want to find opportunities where I can utilize debt. And I'll sort of, maybe, I'll clarify that in a moment. Looking for, ideally, right now I'm looking in Arizona, but I'll probably broaden my geography a bit. I'm looking specifically in government tech and also government contracting related to environmental services. And that's just related to one of my previous deals that we're, we're still looking for additional opportunities there. So those are sort of two different, very, very different segments that I'm looking at. And on the GovTech side, there's a little bit broad lens when I say that. And then on the environmental uh, services side, it's very specific to mold and, and remediation services. Just to jump in there quickly, was yeah. there a reason that you're targeting government? Because they're both targeting government. And the reason I ask yeah. is that's kind of like the target client of the business that I'm moving into. Oh, great. I'm just curious to get your take on why that's the case. Absolutely. So I worked for a large public company that sold to law enforcement agencies prior 
to me leaving. Uh, so that was the large corporate company I left before sort of re-diving into this private equity world slash entrepreneurial world. And I didn't really realize the gold mine that I was participating in through that process. But since then, I've actually done a lot more research and learned more, I would say, actually, since I've left my job than when I was there about government contracting and what that looks like. Because the government basically buys anything. It's, you know, over a trillion dollar market size in, in its broadest sense. They spend a ton of money. And I was sort of sick of seeing my taxpayer dollars go out the door. And it was like, how can I support getting, you know, some of that back? So I believe in small business, the, the backbone of, the, of America, and I want to see more businesses thrive and participate. And there's actually some, I'm going to get the stats wrong here, but I know that there's been a decline in the number of small businesses participating in this government contract. So people get annoyed hearing about some of these large contractors getting contracts. And, you know, a lot of those end up being sort of the, the big defense names that people complain about go be a solution rather than complaining about it. So that sort of was my lens to that. And it is a very sort of unique way of doing business. It's very different than in the private sector, but I'm excited about it because I, again, have this sort of unique lens and experience with it that I understand sort of the ins and outs and how to navigate. it. So for me, it was both sort of this bigger mission opportunity of let's support small businesses in the United States and give people that opportunity. Let's actually put our tax dollars to work in a positive way that's productive and actually builds community within our world, because I think that's one thing that we're lacking. And so there's that piece of it. And then also just having the knowledge and skill set to help navigate that. So it was both pairing bigger thinking, mission orientation, as well as some of the skill sets and experience that I already have. So it's sort of just marrying those two things. Yeah, it's very interesting. You talk about the market there and how different it is from the private sector. And from the limited experience and conversations that I've been having so far, just getting ready for this move into that area, it's almost like you've got to get into the clubs and either via some sort of accreditation or tenders, or whatever. And once you're sort of on these approved lists, I don't know how it's working in your industries. You've got a lot of protection from competition. You've got a lot of access to work and it's a very different market dynamic, which makes it interesting. It's like the mm -hmm. upfront work is the, is the big stuff, but then the yep. repeat work keeps flowing your way. So yep. if you can get that upfront piece right, it's a huge opportunity, not to mention huge budgets less emotional generally than say selling to retail something like yep. that so it, it's a very interesting space especially for someone that's maybe not as marketing focused but maybe has sales experience or operational experience or something like that it's um very very interesting that i'm the more and more i find out about it absolutely and i mean i think it's accessible to anybody to be quite honest it's a it's there is a steep learning curve absolutely but if you have enough business chops to do any kind of small business, you will be able to do government contracting and the, and the government buys everything. Uh, but I, I definitely think there's huge opportunity there. And again, you still have the same baby boomers retiring that have been absorbing these contracts. And so you might as well take those on or you could pair the other strategy I've been approaching is if I find a business and there's an, a contract opportunity, like marry those two things where some in initial easy up, I shouldn't say easy upside, but initial upside could be one of those contracts. Yeah. I think to tie this all together and wrap things up, there's two things that I wanted to ask you. Number one, you've done both startup, business buying, 
for someone that's looking to get into this space and leave that nine to five role, they're in that corporate gig. Do you have a recommendation of what's, because there's very different schools of thought around which direction to take. Are you better off dipping your toe in and starting something from the ground up as a side hustle? What's your general thoughts around this? So it'll be unique to everybody, but I would say just like some common themes, like I wish maybe I had already acquired a company beyond the joint venture that I was working on and maybe before I left my corporate gig. So I would say like, it depends on your appetite for risk. It depends on the capital you have, the conviction you have around either a thesis or an opportunity. So those are factors I would take into consideration, but don't feel like you just have to like quit right away and go full in because acquiring companies takes longer than you expect. It's just like finding a deal. Anything can go wrong in that deal at any point of the process. Gone through a number of those. It's like, I thought I was at the, the finish line and it's not. You know, you find out something and then you're like, I don't want to do this deal. So there's a lot of, a lot of things that happen. Mm. So give yourself enough runway and cushion where you don't, you don't let your emotions lead you or drive you in a certain direction. So again, everybody has a different risk threshold. I think you can do the deal sourcing piece on the side. And then once you find something and then you actually do the acquisition, you'll probably want to go full-time. Like that's, you, you won't be successful if you don't. Let's just put it that way if this is the first deal you've done. I think side hustles are great to dabble and understand like where is the larger opportunity, but like it will be, it will be not as great as a large of a company or opportunity until you go full-time. So it's really a factor of like time versus money and that trade-off and how you think about that, as well as like your comfort with risk, your family situation. So there's just a number of factors, but like it is so possible to do side hustles these days. Like I might, you might as well do that just to understand and test out what resonates with you. Exactly. You mentioned risk, risk threshold there. What's your, I'm interested to get your view on this because there's a popular, I guess, thesis or thought that gets iterated a lot. That's like you're buying an existing business with 10 years of, of track record, existing clients, existing cash flow, existing team. So you're de-risking a lot of the elements that are, that a startup would face. However, you're outlaying a lot more money, right? As opposed to what it would do to start something off the ground. So when you talk about understanding your risk threshold, where do you sit on that question? Because I've, again, heard differing opinions on this. So I have totally shifted my mindset on this. I would say even in the last two years, I was all about startups, high risk, high potential reward, but I very much got burnt out on that. Um, I'm an angel investor in a couple of companies as well. And it's just really tough. Most, I mean, most startups fail. I mean, that is the truth of it. Small businesses also fail if they're startups. I would say starting a small business, though, is very different than sort of what you traditionally would consider a startup. So I would, I would sort of divide it into maybe three buckets, a tech startup or a traditional startup that's like unproven market, unproven demand, unproven solution, or I should, not all of those things unproven, but a few of those. Then you have maybe SMB type startups where it's like, we know demand exists. We know people need car detailing. We know people need cleaning services, HVAC. Like there are certain standard things. So between those two, like go where you know there's demand. That's number one. Like demand and and large markets are a great thing to have. So start there regardless. Then it's between do you start it yourself or do you just acquire a business? And I would say... In certain situations, like starting a a small, medium-sized business is okay and acceptable. Like for a cleaning business, like 
you just need to hire people. Like it's not rocket science. So like maybe it doesn't make sense to be buying that existing company. Or what you could say is like from an existing cleaning company, do they have assets you could buy? You don't need to buy the company. You could buy their customer list. Or is there a creative way to actually get access to those customers that already are in existence without buying the company or even the asset? Is there a partnership opportunity? So there's different ways of thinking about how you can facilitate acquiring the resources you need without any capital outlays. And so it's just about being creative in, in that thinking process. But again, then if it's like a company that has a lot of infrastructure or a sizable, like, yeah, you, it might be worth buying. So it just depends on your goals and everything. I'm definitely on the side of, of buying an existing established business. Yeah, it's really, it's really interesting that some of these things is quite time-tested and not very innovative and quite dull. And yet the approach to how you're involved with them requires such creativity, such lateral thinking, such outside-of-the-box methods and strategies in order to make it work. And the thing to finish off on, I've heard you talk a lot about becoming exit-ready. First of all, what are the key characteristics of an exit-ready SMB and why is that important for us to think about early on? So when I started doing my deal sourcing process, I would come across a lot of companies that were just not in my buy box. And one of the key reasons was because the owner was integral to the business. And I wouldn't say I wouldn't acquire a company like that, but there are plenty of other issues with that. I would say that is the number one thing that I come across is you have an owner who is still doing the the HVAC repair, or they are still very much involved in the execution of the service or in the day-to-day of the business. So even it's like first they start by actually being the practitioner of the service or whatever type of company it is. Then it's managing and overseeing like an actual CEO. But then it's like, how do you actually take that CEO out of the equation so that the business runs without the owner? That's ultimately the goal like you want to get to in this process where you're not in the day-to-day but you are an investor, you are an owner, and that is different than a CEO role. And so how do you make that transition? That is sort of one of the key things that has been, it's, it's exceptionally hard for, for most folks to do because there's mindset shifts you have to go through. There's just momentum, there's routines, how do you delegate? And if you haven't had that experience of actually building out the infrastructure to build out process and systems so that things can operate without you, it is a bit of a shift. So I would say that is like one key thing you need because you'll get a higher multiple, higher valuation if you have the business where you can literally hand over the keys to the car versus you have to be also the driver or that if you take out the driver, it will go because they know this specific thing that needs to happen when you start the engine and da 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 So that I would say is like one of the biggest things. Besides that, it's having like your books in order, your financial statements clean, having your legal structure in order as well. Like people do weird things with their entities and structures that like they can lose millions of dollars if they haven't thought it through. And it's also like making sure you have the right processes as well. So I would say those are some of the the larger buckets. And then when you hand it over to a company, like you have to know what they're thinking and why they would want to acquire the company. Because if you have that lens of like, what could they then do? You can sort of build some additional layers of, I don't want to say foundation, but maybe levels to the company that it would provide a really good appetite for that either strategic buyer or individual or private equity firm. 
So I would say those are just some very high level ones. There's about, I would say I have like a checklist of like over 30 things to consider. The other sort of key thing I would say that I I forgot to mention is also like your acquisition channel. So how repeatable is that? Can you put more money into that? And if not, like you might need another acquisition channel to have some level of diversity. Customer concentration is also a huge one. Again, if you put in the work and you think about this 18 months in advance of when you're ready to sell your company or when you think you could be, Either you'll have a situation where you're going to be so happy with your business because it's running without you and it's just going to be humming. And so the reason, maybe the motivation for you to sell the company because you're sick and tired of the business will go away or you'll basically increase the value in a very short period of time. And again, like it's better to do this as you're building the company, but like you can still get things in order if you think at least 18 months in advance. Any shorter is like sort of rushing it and, and it'll be a bit challenging. And any longer? Oh, then that's fine. I mean, three to five years, if you want to spend the time building, that's fine too, but make sure you're also growing. Because like you said, there's all these side benefits, yeah, right? Absolutely. The main benefit, of course, being of thinking about, oh, I just want to run the same business for 20 years and take cash flow every year versus exactly the latter approach being that you're obviously getting multiple years in advance. So you're able, exactly. if you're able to want to go out and repeat that process, you're making major jumps in your wealth in a compressed time frame. Absolutely. And, and like maybe a way to think about this too is like there are certain businesses that don't have very good multiples. So it's like you might sell it and maybe that's three years of cash flow versus you could get three years of cash flow or 10 years of cash flow and just minimize your work on the business. So that's a trade off versus like there might be an industry where you could sell the business, get, you know, a good multiple on it and then reinvest that capital to then, yeah, to then up level and compound your opportunity. So it's just like your level of thinking, what is sort of comes next? What are you going to do with the capital once you have it? Elizabeth, thank you so much. This has been awesome. Is there anywhere that people should get in contact with you if they want to reach out? Where's the best way? Yeah, LinkedIn is really good. Elizabeth Knopf or on X at Leveraged Upside, or I think you can search and find my name as well. So either of those places, I'm active or engage with people. So feel free to reach out. And I love connecting with people. So don't be shy. Awesome. Thanks so much and have a great one. All the best. Thank you. You too. All right. Bye. That's the conversation with Elizabeth Knopf. How good was that? I love the detail around the step-by-step process she uses for building out her deal sourcing engine. In that, the overarching message was to go out and start talking to business owners. Look around at the companies you're already interacting with every single day and seek out their owners. To find these owners, you can use Google or Elizabeth's personal favorite, Apollo. I've also used this and I can vouch for it. It's helped me connect with a lot of cool business owners. Then you can go direct to the location if it's local, or you can pick up the phone and speak to them. From here, if you're getting serious, you can expand your search beyond the businesses that you're interacting with on a daily basis. And to do so, Elizabeth suggests defining your buy box or your investment criteria, including your relevant parameters like geographical location, EBITDA size, and industry or business type, amongst other things. You can punch these details into a tool like Apollo to generate a list of businesses with owner's contact details. And from here, you can then begin a systemized outbound approach, either yourself or using someone from Fiverr. So Elizabeth recommends setting up some sort of sequence for outbound contact. This could be an email sequence with follow-ups or because you're potentially dealing with lots of retiring business owners, Liz urges you to not forget to pick up the phone and just simply call. From there, hold your horses and play it cool. Be a normal human. Don't be that guy or girl who's desperately jumping into the question, how much do you want to sell your company for? Instead, build rapport. Work with them to understand what their plans for the future are and position yourself as an investor. 
If it's worth taking the next step, you can start the discussion around evaluation, potentially a ballpark figure on the first or second call, and then requesting some financial statements. From this point, you're off to the races and you're into the due diligence process to determine if this is the business that's right for you. So guys, thank you for listening in with us today. You are the driving force behind this show and the reason why we are growing so fast. So in the past couple of weeks, some cool news here. We've been charting within the top 75 entrepreneurship pods in the whole of the US and as high as number 25 in the UK. I cannot thank you enough. This has already helped me land some awesome future guests, which will be going live over the next couple of months. You and I are going to be learning so much from these business owners. I honestly can't wait. If you did like what Liz had to say today, let's please keep this momentum going by sharing the episode. If you do have five seconds, I'd love it. I'd appreciate it so much. If you could just text the link to one friend, or if you're feeling extra generous, sharing on social media and tagging me at Jake M. Richards on X or at Jake M. Richards one on Instagram. Like I said, this is already helping to get more top quality guests on here to make us all better small business owners. You're making a massive impact with a small act, and I'm so thankful for it. That's it for today, though. Thank you so much. I'll catch you next Thursday. But until then, keep getting after it. 